0: Let us pray. Our almighty and gracious God, we thank you that we can gather here this night, that we can gather and remember the great and glorious acts of Jesus, that we can remember the work that you have done for us, that though we were sinners, you still sent your Son into this world to die for our sins. And here on this night, Maundy Thursday, he gave us a great example of his love, of how we are to love one another. And we pray, Father, that you would drive this truth deep into our hearts and that we would evermore be changed according to your grace. And we ask this all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Foot washing is such a strange thing in our culture, in our society, I think. It's not something that we practice regularly. It's not something that is part and parcel of our daily lives. It's necessary as it was in Jesus' day and in many cultures since Jesus' day, in cultures that don't wear closed-toe shoes, in cultures that wear sandals and don't have socks and feet become dirty and nasty from just a daily grind of life. And so foot washing was an utterly necessary thing for the disciples, for Jesus, for those people, and for many cultures for thousands of years. But yet it is not part of our culture. And so we come here tonight and we get to observe a ritualistic version of it, a symbolic version of it, a version that teaches us something, though, that as the disciples learn something then and there of the example of Jesus of how they should treat and love and serve one another, we too, in our symbolic way of doing it, are called to learn something about what God has done. And yet, it's still strange. The first time I ever experienced a foot washing was when I was in college. Having grown up United Methodist, we celebrated Holy Week, we observed Holy Week. We had Monday Thursday services, we had Good Friday services but I don't ever remember in my little Methodist church actually having a foot-washing ceremony, actually doing that during a Monday-Thursday service. I guess we would gather and hear about the foot-washing and hear it preached and hear it given as an example and a way of living, and that ultimately it's about serving and loving one another. It's about caring for one another and submitting yourself to others, and so I guess in that sense it wasn't necessary. But it wasn't until I was in college on a short-term mission trip that I first experienced someone washing my feet in this way. And it was a strange experience. It confused me. It made me feel uncomfortable. It made me cry. Because in that experience, it was a young lady that I'd gotten to know at the church who was in, in high school at the time. And we had become good friends and had a lot in common and had a lot of friends in common. And she took me by the hand at this worship service that was with foot washing and said, I'm going to wash your feet. And me being a little bit like Peter's, like, no, 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 you don't need to do that. But she insisted and so she did. And it was good because it taught me something. It reminded me of the reality of love and service for others in uncomfortable ways. And that is what this becomes for us, an example of the discomfort that we are called to experience in serving one another And not just serving, but loving one another. For our service is love toward one another. Service without love is meaningless. But nonetheless, even if we don't feel love, we still serve. Because we know deep down beneath our feelings, beneath all the surface level things that we experience, that we do reach out and love to others. If we only go by our feelings about love, then we will miss the big picture. We'll never do anything because those feelings come and go. They are flighty. They are untrustworthy. They lead us down the wrong path so often. Our hearts cannot be trusted in and of themselves because, after all, Jeremiah tells us in his own writings that the heart is deceitful above all things. Our hearts cannot be trusted, though they have been renewed. Sin still creeps and lurks there, ready to strike out and twist and turn us in the wrong direction so quickly. So nonetheless, even when we don't feel love, we still serve knowing that deep down we have been called to love and that service expresses that love deep down, that true love, that agape, charitable love that reaches out to the other with no expectation of return. And here Jesus is giving his disciples that example here before his very crucifixion that will be the ultimate example of his love. And we hear about this great love of Jesus for his disciples there in the first verse. And when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think that translation kind of misses a little bit of the thud that this should give us. Other ways that has been translated in the past is that he loved them to the uttermost. He had an uttermost love, a love that extended beyond all boundaries, that extended beyond all comprehension, all reasonableness. A love that passeth all knowledge. That is the kind of uttermost love that Jesus had for his disciples. And it's good that he had that kind of love for his disciples. It reminds us that there is a deep and abiding great love for believers. That yes, we know that God loves sinners. He cares for sinners. In fact, He sends Christ into this world to demonstrate His love for sinners. That sinners who are stuck in the midst of their sin, He dies for them still because that's where we all were. That's where everyone was when Jesus died. We were all sinners in the midst of our sin and Christ died for our sins. And so we know that God the Father loves sinners that Jesus loves sinners but oh is there an ever so deep love for those who respond a love experience that sinners can't know until they turn from their sin until they recognize the depth of sin and rejoice and have faith then they experience this deeper love of Christ this deep and abiding love that changes and renews them and it's an ever so deep love of Christ that he gives to us saints And after all, could it be any other way? Think about it. His love must be great and beyond measure. Because what are we saints? We are saints who are yet still sinners. Sinners have an excuse to sin. They haven't received new hearts. They haven't been changed by the gospel. They haven't been confronted with the reality of their sin. And yet, we saints have been confronted with that reality and still turn to sin. We remain simultaneously sinners, though we have been justified, though we have been rectified, though we have been redeemed and reconciled to the Father. We still turn and sin with renewed hearts and minds and wills. We abandon him over and over for our sin. The weakness of our flesh often overcomes the very strength that our spirits have been imparted with by the Holy Spirit himself. Our flesh is weak, and yet that weakness overcomes the strength of the Spirit. Isn't that a strange thing that occurs within? It's the exact opposite of what Paul speaks of there over in 2 Corinthians 12. Where in my weakness I know I am strong. In weakness I know the strength of Christ. But yet so often that weakness overcomes that strength. Oh, but there's still joy because even when that weakness overcomes that strength of spirit, we can turn and confess that we... Have been overcome by our flesh. We can confess our sins once more and return back to that uttermost love that never fails, that never abandons us when we abandon it. Bishop J.C. Ryle had a very wonderful comment about this. He said that no mother watching over the waywardness of her feeble babe in the days of its infancy has her patience so thoroughly tried as the patience of Christ is tried by us Christians. Yet his long suffering is infinite. His compassions are a well that is never exhausted. His love is a love that passeth knowledge. Isn't that beautiful to imagine? That uttermost love is beyond all things. His compassion toward us Christians, toward us believers who will inevitably give in to our flesh. That compassion is a well that is never exhausted. For even in my life, when I ran as far as I could from my faith and from Christ, he still reached out and took me back. He still called me back to himself, and the whole time I was running, he was calling to me. Through family, through friends, through conscience, he was calling to me to return, to turn away from the sin that I was pursuing and come back to him. Because his compassion could never be exhausted with those he has placed that love upon. And so He calls each of us away from our sins. He calls us away from what we once were in order that we might become what He desires us to be. And even in the midst of being and becoming what He has desired us to be, when we turn from that, He keeps calling us to return and coming to us searching for us lost sheep who so quickly abandoned Him. But even in the midst of that uttermost love, we hear John remind us that there was a deceived heart in their midst. In their midst, Then in verse 2, During supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, even with that great uttermost love of Christ for his disciples, there was one who had a deceived heart. There was one who was going to betray him, one who had turned against him and had already turned against him. He had already sold Jesus out. The funny thing about Judas is, he is one of the disciples. That at some point during this great ministry of him following Jesus and being his disciple, somewhere in there, his heart turned away from the Lord. We're never told anything about Judas's distrustfulness. We're never told anything about the deceitfulness of his heart until right before Jesus is betrayed. We hear a hint of it when he complains about the waste of the anointing oil. We hear a little bit of that, of him not trusting Jesus to the uttermost, of him being more concerned about money than with faith and love and showing affection toward Jesus. But prior to that, there's nothing said. He is one of the twelve. He went out two by two with all the other disciples in pairs. And we assume that he cast out demons, that he told of the coming of the kingdom, that he healed people that he proclaimed the forgiveness of the Father to others. Now I can't imagine him doing those things without having some measure of the Spirit of God at work in him, some measure of faith being in him all that time. But we don't know what happened. Though he had known the Lord deeply and intimately and had followed him and had done ministry for him, because Scripture never says when the disciples came back that they all talked about the miraculous things they did, except for Judas Iscariot, who couldn't do anything. It doesn't say that. It just says the twelve returned and they celebrated the work that they had done. They told Jesus about the ministry and him he took them aside to go pray and refresh themselves and gain rest after such a great exertion. We don't know what happened, except that at this point, at this time, Judas' heart had been deceived and turned away from the Lord. And we must ever be watchful of our hearts. That's why I said that Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart can deceive us. The heart can lead us astray. We reject our cultural idea that is in so many of our wonderful Disney movies. Just follow your heart. I followed my heart once, and it led to nothing but pain and suffering and grief for everyone around me and myself. Every time I follow my heart, it leads to grief. It leads to pain. It leads to people being hurt. It leads to me experiencing deeper pain in my own life as opposed to that of which I would experience if I denied my heart. Yes, denying your heart causes pain, it causes grief, but the level of grief that you will ultimately experience when you let your heart deceive you utterly and completely that you turn away from Jesus is a place that we never want to go, is a place that we can always escape from, is a place. That it merely takes a confession of sin, a turning away from what the world tells us to be to what God has commanded us to be. And in God commanding us to be something different than what we have been born as, He will empower us slowly and surely through His gospel and through the power of the Spirit working in us to bring us back to Himself. So that even the deceiver's heart, the deceived heart can come to truth. Because God will plant that truth as Our eyes are open to the deceitfulness that we have fallen for. But nonetheless, Judas had abandoned Jesus in such a way that there was no calling him back, that even having his feet washed by Jesus, even knowing of all the times Jesus said, I will die here in Jerusalem, but on the third day I will be raised again. My death is for the sins of the world. My death is to bring the forgiveness to many. He had heard all these words and yet his deceived heart couldn't be cracked open again. He abandoned the Lord. I cry out for us not to do that in our own lives, to not follow the path of the Iscariot, of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. But if you see deceitfulness in your heart to confess it now, to turn away from it, to cry out to God, to remove it from your own heart, to rejoice in the power of Christ, to change us, to turn us away from the evils that are inside of each and every one of us. Though the things in us may not seem that evil before people or before our own eyes, if it breaks any of the commandments of God, then it is evil indeed. For it goes against a holy God, and God in and of himself is holy and calls us to that same holiness, and that is why he sent Jesus. Because we in ourselves can never achieve the holiness he calls for and commands. He knows that we cannot do that, and that is why Jesus has come. Jesus has come to be our holiness. To be the one who stands in the breach. To be the one who pours new life and a new way of living. A new heart and a new spirit into us. And in fact, He brings to us a cleansing wash. Over and over and over again, we receive that cleansing wash as we confess our sins. As we hear here now, Him going to disciples And laying aside his garments and taking up that towel and tying it around his waist and pouring water into a basin. And wrapping and going and washing his disciples' feet and wiping them with a towel. Jesus acting as the ultimate servant, as the lowliest of all servants here, washing feet. Washing the daily grind off of their feet. And Peter, in his stupidity, says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. But then when Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no share in me. And he says, well, then all of me, wash all of me then right now. If only we had that kind of love, that kind of excitement to be cleansed by Jesus every day. To say, oh, then wash, my, wash me completely clean once more, oh Lord. But as Jesus says, it's only your feet that need to be washed when you've already been bathed. And you are clean, but not every one of you, again, looking back to that deceived heart that is in their midst whose feet have been cleaned whose feet have been washed but there is a cleansing wash that comes to us continually through jesus as he washes our feet a metaphor there i think of just the daily grind of sin leeching onto us and it needing to be washed away that we have been fully bathed through our baptisms in baptism we are washed clean we're given the pledge of a good conscience of a new conscience before the father the Holy Spirit comes to dwell with us and to begin implanting in us those promises of forgiveness, life, and salvation. And so we don't need to be rebathed again. We don't need to be rebaptized when we fall into sin. We but nearly, merely need to confess that sin and remember our, the work of Jesus through that baptism, the work of Jesus every moment of our lives to cleanse us and to renew us day in and day out. We are given that cleansing wash that turns our hearts back to Jesus, that turns our minds and our eyes back to Him. That cleansing wash comes to us every time we confess our sins. It is waiting to wash our feet and to renew us once more for service and love of the Father and to those that He places in our paths each day. And lastly, Jesus tells them, there in verses 12 through 15, that if your teacher, the one you call teacher and Lord, has done such as this to you, then you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. I found it deeply ironic that as we are here about how we have been empowered to love one another and we are called to love one another, to serve one another, to do to one another as Jesus has done to his disciples, that that's where we stop here on Monday, Thursday as Anglicans, that we don't actually get to the place where Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. We actually don't read that in our gospel reading for the day. We'll read it here shortly during our foot washing time. But here we're told to serve one another, to follow this example of caring for one another. As I said, Jesus was doing the lowliest servant's job. And now he calls each of the disciples to do that very lowly servant's job for one another. To love and serve one another in the lowest of ways, which means dying to self. It means embracing that uttermost love of Jesus. Denying the deceived heart and receiving that cleansing wash over and over and over again. And to deny yourself utterly and completely and to submit and serve those that God puts around you. Especially the believers, the Lord's household, to serve and love them to the uttermost, as Jesus has loved his people. But you may ask, how can I do such a great deed? How can I be empowered to love others as Christ commands me to? And that's the other half of our evening tonight. There and here at this altar, at this table, we receive the body and blood of Christ through this bread and wine. And there we are given the gifts of life and salvation and forgiveness. All the benefits of Christ come pouring into us as we receive with faith, with repentance. As we receive His body and blood through that bread and wine, we are transformed little by little more and more. And through that transformation are empowered to then go out to love and serve the Lord. To go out and do what He has called us to do here. You also should do just as I have done to you. He commands us to love one another in this way of foot washing, in this way of self-denial. And he empowers us with the very supper, with the Eucharist, the great Thanksgiving meal. For it is a great Thanksgiving meal, for we receive Jesus through it and are empowered to go out. And we respond with thankful hearts, hearts that have been renewed And in thanksgiving, go out to do the very thing he commanded us to do. We get the strength. We get the power. We get the ability to do what Jesus has called us to do. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't receive the Eucharist every single week, constantly, all the time, that you won't have this power in you either. But I am reminding us that this is the central place where we receive from God his truth in that way. As some Anglicans have put it, the Eucharist is the pinnacle of our worship. For here, heaven and earth meet in a way that we can't understand. The veil is pulled back between the physical and the spiritual. And that spiritual comes to invade us. Jesus gives us himself in that moment, renewing our hearts and our minds in a special and unique way. Now whenever we pray, whenever we confess our sins, whenever we read scripture, whenever we have deep fellowship with one another, we are receiving life too. We are receiving the goodness of God and are being encouraged and empowered by the words that are shared, that are truth, to live as God has called us to do. Yes, we are empowered in those moments, but here is the central place where we are promised and given that reality. We are given that truth here in this Lord's Supper, in this Eucharist. And that is why it's called the Thanksgiving, because that's what Eucharist is, Thanksgiving. For in this Eucharist, we get the power, we get the Spirit, we get Jesus Himself put into us in soul and body to renew us and to guide us into that new life. And so as we prepare to wash one another's feet this night, let us also look forward to receiving the very meal that will empower us to go out and to act out this symbolic act in real ways throughout our days. For here, washing feet is a symbol of the great love and service that we desire to give to others. To those whose feet we wash, we desire to love and serve them. But it also is a symbolic act that tells us that we are to go out and to do the same thing for all those that we haven't literally wash the feet of. For our love and service to them is a washing of their feet, an opportunity for them to know Jesus, to know what he has done, for Jesus is acting through us because he comes to dwell in us. For when we receive the Lord's Supper, he comes to dwell in us anew and applies all of his benefits to us. And so may we receive that by faith. Our faith receives it. Our faith lays hold of the truths and the goodness and the promises of God in Jesus Christ that are given through this bread and wine. Our faith receives it always. And so come in faith and repentance. Come to receive that uttermost love that will turn your deceived heart away from deceit into truth and will cleanse you always and empower you for the love and service ahead. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.